Hi, everyone. <clears throat> it is uh, exactly 3 p.m. East Coast time right here on the 26th of May, 2022. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 117 of my live chat. I hope you are doing well. I appreciate you joining me here on this Thursday uh, afternoon, my time. What will we get to? There are no MMA fights this weekend, at least no major ones. Of course, there'll be some regional ones and some other stuff, but there's nothing major this weekend. There is Tank and Rolando Romero on Showtime pay-per-view. I tend to think that only goes one way, but, you know, we don't know, so we'll have to see how that goes. Uh, and then, of course, anything else on your mind, um, tragedy in Texas or not, whatever is really up to you. So let's do this. Put this joker up. Thumbs up on the video. Please hit subscribe if you're listening on podcast. Uh, on a podcast platform, please give me a nice review uh, on that particular space, whether it's Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, whatever. Doesn't matter. I uh, hope you are doing well. Otherwise, took my daughter to the zoo today. Boy, I got to tell you, zoos at like a 9 a.m. on a weekday are a, <laughs> a lot better. Well, first of all, I'm not a big fan of zoos generally. Uh, and if you have a roadside zoo, then fuck your life. And I'm generally opposed to going to zoos. I suppose for the most part, but I've actually talked to some folks who are in the conservation movement and they say that this one, the national zoo is pretty good in terms of animal welfare and whatnot. So anyway, I took my daughter to the zoo, had a good time, had a really good time, Boy, I got to see everything. It was kind of wild. Anyway, you don't give a shit, but I'm just telling you what I did today. All right. Uh, neither here nor there. Let's get this party started. All right, and we're back. Uh, as a reminder, you are certainly under no obligation. We will go for about an hour today on the free questions. You might be asking, where do the free questions go? There's a community tab at youtube.com slash Luke Thomas. I fill it up the day before the live chat. You guys fill, I, I put up an open thread. You guys fill it up with questions, and then we go from there. If you'd like to leave a donation with a question attached to it, I will get to it at the end. That's sort of a standard disclaimer. If you're new here, folks like, oh, they're paying you to ask a question. No, not really. It's, I mean, yes, in a sort of practical terms, that's what's happening, but it's more of a donation. So just think of it that way. But you are certainly under no obligation to give whatsoever. If you just want to be here for the ride, I appreciate you just the same. Okay? All right. With that in mind, let's turn this off. And let's pull the questions up. And we shall get this going. Hope everyone's doing well today. I don't know where you are or what you're doing, but I hope it's a good day for you just the same. All right. <laughs> First question, Luke, how much better is your lifestyle now that you don't need to travel every day to get to your job and back when you're not on the road? I remember an interview on Big Brian, you said your travel time was something like a few hours to get to work. Yeah, each way, each way. Honestly, just the thought of that much travel time would make me question my life choices. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, believe me, it was making me question mine, too. Uh, this person's from Australia. Yeah, it's a lot better now. It's a lot better. Like Just for the simple example of this one, I could go and take my daughter in the morning to the zoo. Like I didn't have to wait for, a, you know, f well, the, the zoo closes at 4, so you can't even do it after work on weekdays. It's either during work hours or Saturday and Sunday, and you can well imagine it's pretty crazy on Saturday and Sunday. So, um, But, yes, more than that, just not sitting on trains all the time and running from play. Like My life was just I was running everywhere all the time running to get to the train station not that I was even late but it just felt like I was constantly on this march and running to get to the you know get in the queue to then line up and then go into the train then it's a four-hour train ride each way you know from uh, DC to New York City four hours each way assuming no delays 
assuming no delays. And there were a lot of delays all, you know, every time. It would be, sometimes there'd be weeks at a time there wouldn't be, but you get the idea. Like your best case scenario, what I would usually do is I would uh, I would do the Luke Tom or the, at the time it was called the Luke Thomas uh, show on Sirius XM. And that would air 3 to 6 p.m. So like this time till 6. And then after that, I would catch a 6.45 train home, which would put me at the train station at about 10.30, 10.45, assuming no other issues. And then it's another 15-minute drive home. So I get home about 11. I would leave the house at about 4.30 a.m. Now, to be clear, I'm not putting, at, at that time either, I wasn't putting shingles on a roof. I wasn't aiming a rifle downfield at somebody. Like you know, There are a lot of really worse ways to you know, have to make a buck. But that sucked. Terrible on your life, terrible on your schedule, terrible on your psyche. Don't recommend it. You could do it for like a really short burst. I, the year was too long. But like if you had to do it for like three months, maybe even six months, not a big deal. Well, not easy, but not the end of the world. But I did it for a year. I mean, I was like, a, that was terrible. Yeah, so it's a lot better. It's significantly better. You know, And it affects everything. Sleep, um, you know, not if you're in control of it, it gives you the opportunity to control how you eat, um, you know, exercising becomes much, yes, I was on the move a lot, but I mean like coordinated exercise, like all of those things become a little bit more accessible, social relationships, free time, just, I mean, I had free time on the train, but you know, it's sort of constrained in that way. Yes. I mean, it goes without saying it's significantly better now. Uh, if I had told you in 2019, 2020, that even with Habib not competing what if I told you that in 2019, 2020, that even with Habib not competing, excuse me, that Gaethje, Poirier, and Ferguson would never win a fully unified title, how would you have reacted? I'd be very surprised. I'd be very surprised. I mean, in the end, I've seen enough of MMA where um, you watch MMA long enough. This is probably true of any field, but certainly any sport in particular, but it's really true of MMA where MMA is very much a lot of boom and bust cycles and a lot of bust happens on um and these are not failures by any stretch but what i mean is a lot of narratives get built constantly and uh, there's this amplification of a certain person at a certain time and sometimes it holds true a lot of times it doesn't or it's kind of half true and there's these hot moments and then cold moments and then hot moments and then cold moments and you know surprising result dramatic one ordinary one surprising the, the 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 routine of insanity the routine of surprise that part would not really surprise me I, I would take me a second to absorb it and then you're like oh right this is sort of just what happens in fighting like what you think you know what you think you expect sometimes it happens sometimes it happens right to the letter but often it's very different or meaningfully different or at, at a bare minimum uh, off from what you had initially assumed I would have assumed for sure Poirier would have taken it um, you know, again, we're talking about 2019. I would have thought Ferguson, no doubt about it. If I, if you know, one of the, if Poirier didn't have it, I'd be like, well, Ferguson will get it. And then Gaethje, I would have thought, I didn't. I I thought Gaethje was going to beat Ferguson, but not the way it went. So even with all of them, yes, I would have been very surprised. I'd be hugely, hugely surprised. And Charles Oliveira was. I was slow to accept his ascension. Um, candidly, the wins were all nice. You know. Like you could you could look at them and be like wow that Kevin Lee win was really nice and so on and so forth, and then it wasn't until when was it where I was like wow he really is like maybe the Tony Ferguson win certainly the last one I mean, that Justin Gaethje win might be the most impressive of them all in certain ways you know the way he just walked him down basically and and demolished him inside of a round I mean I would have thought 
If that, I would have thought if that fight was going to end in a round, it would have ended the other way. And Charles Oliveira just kind of took it to him, didn't he? So yes, MMA is full. You will, you watch this sport long enough and think there are some things that will slowly reveal themselves to be true that you had a hunch about. Fair enough, it will happen for you. But you'll watch long enough, and a lot of things that you and many others may have assumed was going to be, you know, the next piece of the puzzle to fall into place just does not go the way you thought, and for reasons that potentially you should. You know, and, and whenever you get it wrong, which will happen enough. Or you know things just don't happen the way you would anticipate. Whatever you want to phrase it, you should reflect on on why those might be the case. Um, this has four up likes. I'll give it one. Uh, Luke, you said whatever repressive government referring to the UAE. Why do you criticize? Excuse me. Why do you not criticize the U.S.? I mean, are you kidding? Okay. And other Western governments for their repression as much neo-colonialism, Iraq, Somalia, Palestine. I mean, fellas, I've had fighters who are pro-Israel send me threatening messages in my DMs for expressing pro-Palestinian sentiment. I mean, on what motherfucking planet are you living on? I've had literally fighters threaten me over it. Literally. That happened. That happened during uh, the pandemic. So, you know, I mean... <laughs> okay. Sure. I don't say a word, clearly. Uh, all repression is wrong, sure. But comparatively, Western repression is far greater than any other country's repression. Well... Uh, depends what you mean. If you're asking, are they a greater force for good out in the world? Well, that is certainly a debate to be had. They, President Biden putting troops back in Somalia, one could argue after he didn't like the election results. That seems pretty fucking bad. Iraq, a, a moral horror of which there can be no other word to describe it. Afghanistan, something pretty similar, and at a bare minimum, a giant waste of blood and treasure. Um, but if we're talking about internal governance trying to equate how the U.S. treats its own citizens relative to how Iraq treats its own or Somalia or occupied Palestine, whatever you would like to describe it, those those would not be tantamount things. I think that's the argument you would make. But if you'd like to say that the Western governments have, and by the way, their own record at home, you know, is not unimpeachable, just not tantamount to what you might get elsewhere. Um, yeah, fine. If you want to sort of say that Western uh, neocolonialism and... Uh, Foreign adventures have all blown up in their face of late, relatively speaking. Yeah, sure. And they've been horrible and uh, wreaked untold amounts of uh, damage. Yeah, of course. But, like, that's not the same as going to a place that is internally repressive uh, in the way that it is. Um, these are not to say that these are all good in the ways you could measure good or bad in simplistic terms. But if we're asking just where the, you know, you know again, this would be in general over time, in time, where you have greater quality of life and greater access to um, meaningful freedoms, no one is going to put any of those places over uh, Germany, let's say. Luke, given the grief Dana gave Mighty Mouse and Aldo for their poor drawing abilities, why, do you, why does the UFC keep giving Nunez pay-per-view main events despite pulling even worse numbers. I understand buy rates aren't as important these days. You kind of hit the nail on the head there with the ESPN deal, but it shows a disconnect between UFC and public interest. What disconnect would it show? I'm not sure I understand that. Oh, you mean like putting something out there and then it does poorly. Well, for starters, again, uh, let's go back to the context you set. You set the context with ESPN changing things. It cannot be overstated how significant that is. That's not a small change. That is a massive change. It's not just a change from Fox to ESPN, which 
to the viewer doesn't mean much. It's the way in which the contract is structured and how money is garnered. Not just that money, but the money that the UFC gets from their overseas media deals with their broadcaster in, in Chile, their broadcaster in China, their broadcaster in Russia, their broadcaster in various parts of Ger- uh, 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 Europe. All of them, they have contracted revenue to all of these markets that comes in. So as long as the content is produced on their end through live events and various other forms of distribution, boom, you've got not just a large amount of money, you've got the bulk of their money. Um, oh, excuse me. I think pay-per-view still makes the bulk of it, but the change in the change in the business plan has, I mean, you heard Ari Emanuel bragging about it recently. Did he not? Um, saying that he had taken out the volatility of the business model, or at least, you know, at, for the most part, smoothed it out. That's real. That's very, very real. Whether he can take credit for it is one thing, but certainly that that has happened in the business plan. You cannot overstate the effects of that. The other part, though, is just a sort of a simple equation. You could put it as a fight night, but you'd probably make, like, the brand is hot right now. The UFC brand is really hot. You could put it on pay-per-view, and it probably won't do well, but whatever you're going to do on there is more than you would make if you just made it a fight night card or something like that. Or, you know, yes, what you're saying is headlining. You could put another co-headliner there, but then that gets to the other question of, one, to what extent are you making sure that women headline and... And sort of some kind of, you know, silly uh, quota system. But, like, you have them on your roster. Are they always going to be in co-main event roles or are they going to main event? You could say, well, they should only main event when fights are, you know, above 200,000 pay-per-view buys to be expected. But we don't make that rule for the men either, quite candidly. Now, your point is, well, less about not making it or making it just the lack of criticism. Right, but that criticism came in a completely different era where they were much more reliant on the star power of those guys. And so when they got one of those, when the, in the case of Aldo, the, one of the criticisms that was leveled at him, whether it was fair or not, was that he didn't speak English and that kind of inhibited him from really growing inside the U.S. market. There probably is a little bit to be said for that. Um, but, uh, you know, back, I, I don't know when all those comments were made, but certainly their deal in Brazil is, you know, their distribution deal with Combache there is extremely lucrative for them. Um and, you know, they're partly at the mercy of just whatever they can put together on a calendar. I think that they wanted to have Kamaru versus Leon for International Fight Week. It didn't work out. And so they have to kind of put together what they have to put together. They put an Ultimate Fighter season behind this. Like, you know, I get that not every pay-per-view is going to be big. And I get that there are probably are choices you can make where um, could you have done a few different permutations to have better fight night cards, better headlining pay-per-view roles. Yes, there could be things shifted around. But between their schedule and how it constantly moves and their needs and how it constantly moves, the less vol- the significantly less volatility in the business plan, um, this is just what you're going to end up with. You're going to end up with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's not like, dude, if you don't like it, don't fucking buy it. Like, you know, I, I sound like Dana White when I'm, when I'm sort of deflecting criticism in that way, but I, I truly mean it. I, I, you know, uh, it's hard for an MMA fan to kind of accept that because our true, true, like diehard MMA fan who buys them all to accept that you want more bang for your buck each time, but this is just the reality of their market. They cannot, what do they do, 12, 13 a year? They cannot guarantee you're going to have nothing but bangers all the time. And I don't just mean, oh, well, injury got in the way of it. Like, even with accounting for injury, even accounting for uh, talent retention, accounting for, uh, you know, in the case of COVID, like it blew up everyone's plans and where you're going to put things. Like, even accounting for that, even if none of those things were in play, they still couldn't really do... 13 just super high-quality bangers as pay-per-view headliners. It's just not really in the cards. Um, this is a 
they they put a you can't say they didn't try and promote these two. They did. They're putting the rematch on pretty quickly. They do a lot of media. There's a lot of storyline behind it. If it doesn't sell, it doesn't sell. But this is the greatest women's fighter, arguably, of all time. She should probably be in a headlining role. She's a feature part of their company. She's trying to get her title back. It would be a big deal if she did. It would be a big deal if she didn't. Putting that in pay-per-view is also just an acknowledgement that like this is this is elite, high-level, special MMA, and it should be treated as such. Yeah, okay, fair enough. And by the way, you should ask the participants who gets pay-per-view points, even if they don't sell that much, where would they rather be? Now, in the case of, you know, the, I think there was a time where you maybe you could make an argument that for a certain space of his reign, Demetrius Johnson may not have, because you have to hit certain tiers, like above 250,000 buys, you get X amount, above 350, above four or five. And so you get more as you hit to these, these uh, escalating tiers. Uh, he may have not been able to draw in such a way where he could ever hit a tier to really make more than whatever his base pay might have been. And so if there was some kind of base pay guarantee he's willing to forfeit pay-per-view. That seems like a sensible trade-off as well. But I think Amanda's probably somewhere around or slightly above that. So even for her, it probably makes more financial sense to even try that. So I, your point is well taken that um, you know we have tried this before and it hasn't necessarily turned into anything dramatic. Fair enough. Not everyone's going to be a star. Not everyone wants to be a star. It's star making is for the very few and rare and special and lucky. It's a lot of factors that go into it. Also, Dana White could probably look in the mirror and say maybe burying her when she fell out last minute of her fight against Shevchenko didn't necessarily help her long-term appeal. But she is an extremely high-quality fighter who has done an enormous amount of important work. She is still relevant. This is a highly relevant fight for that division, quite literally for the belt. Yeah, it should be on pay-per-view. That's what I think. And if people don't want to pay for it, they are under no obligation to pay. I know I might sound like a little bit like the UFC when I say that, but in this case, I don't think that hand-wringing is all that worth it. I'm a little bit more accepting of the hand-wringing on the um, fight night cards being really watered down because I've been a big proponent of, like, you should go heavy on pay-per-view and then the fight nights should not, there should be a big gap between them rather than kind of making them all the same. But that would also require there to be fewer shows. Um, to, in order to do that. So if they want as many shows as they're going to have to get as much guaranteed contracted, re contracted revenue, it's just going to be what it's going to be, folks. Uh, what the fuck kind of question is this? Hi, Luke. When celebrities come out with statements like, I don't mind paying for high gas prices and food prices, as long as Trump isn't in office while ordinary working class people are struggling, will these statements in the end result in a Trump-like figure uh, becoming president again? And do you believe these left-leaning celebrities truly believe in these statements, or do you think celebrities think it's a way to increase popularity? Without knowing who you're referring to generally, no. I will say there's a lot of antipathy towards the rich these days and, 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 um, and celebrities in general, some of which seems a little bit like undertow where people are just doing it to do it but some of it feels quite normal uh, quite uh, justified I don't know who you're referring to in this case um, I don't think that would do it I mean there will be a significantly greater series of complex arrangements that would produce a Trump-like figure which I think there's already a lot of evidence you, you're seeing that you're even seeing that in races where Trump didn't endorse someone but the other person adopted uh, Trump-like tactics. So either way, it's six one way, half a dozen the next uh, in certain ways. Um, what that says about Trump's endorsement power is a little bit different. Obviously, he's had a lot of success there too. But n no, I mean, you're already kind of... The, the argument from what you're referring to uh, 
I don't think th- that this would just merely, you know, drive a wedge between um, celebrities and probably right-leaning working-class Americans. I don't think it would really do much more than that, at least not in the short run. Long-term, harder to say. But to get more Trumps in office, you, you we're, we're already we've already got that. We're we're already going to get more. T- um, Ron DeSantis is uh, is kind of like Trump, only just not a complete fucking idiot. Actually, actually, Ron DeSantis is quite quite smart. You can say what you want about his politics. You can like him or you can hate him. He's not stupid. Not at all. Quite bright. Um, but there are certain Trumpian aspects to his uh, governorship and political style generally that, you know, it's... What, what were the two... There's a famous quote. Who was it from Benjamin Wittes? Who said, or Wittes, whatever he pronounces the last name, where he said, the only thing holding back the Trump administration... It's their... Uh, Malevolence tempered only by incompetence, right? Right. I mean, you know, you guys, if you like him, great. He was terribly unintelligent. Um, good political instincts, but very stupid person. But uh, more to the point, Ron DeSantis is not. He is not. He is every. He is quite the opposite. He is quite bright. And um, but I think that style of politics that Trump used to basically transform the GOP, or at least unleash dark forces within it, or however you wish to describe it, uh, that has already happened. The celebrities will have n- really no impact on that one way or the other. Uh, Luke, what's happening? I recently listened to a podcast with Jim Miller where he discussed his longevity in MMA and wrestling, and I'm curious about the best practices and training have changed for the last two decades. Podcast with Miller had me thinking about guys like him. Cup Swanson, Trinaldo, Edson Barboza are all competing at an elite level, even if they aren't at the tops of their divisions anymore. Um, even Poirier's recent title shot and Aldo's latest run are incredible to consider, blah, blah, blah. So the question would be, do you know how best practices and training have changed for the better? There is a lot to go with that. Probably reduced sparring would be a, a pretty significant one. But I will tell you that the one that stands out to me much more, having seen how guys trained in the aughts, so 05, 06, 07, 08, 09, um, skipping a little bit of time, getting back into it around the, the teens and then late teens. So of seeing that a little bit, there was a big, big difference in rehab, I noticed. A big, big difference in like yoga being involved and stretching and icing and not like icing like I'm just going to put enough ice on this so I can limp to the bed and limp to the shower and then get to the training room and as soon as my guard warms up, I'll be ready to go and, and doing stuff like that. Yeah, you still see a lot of that, especially from the hobbyists who don't know any better. But from the ones who are like pro athletes, there is a significantly greater degree of, I've got to do not as much rehab as I do training, but you have to have as much effort into recovery and thought into recovery um, in terms of the, the uh, uh, not sort of the amount per se, but the the care you take with that, you have to in, in involve it the same way you involve your training. It has to be programmed. It has to be specific and, and modern and, you know, all those things. I see a lot more of that, significantly more of that than I ever did before. That def- that message has definitely gotten through. It's actually a pretty, it's a pretty profound and pretty simple message. Some of it is preventative care. Some of it is uh, after injury care. Some of it is chronic injury sort of mediation, right? It's all different kinds of things that people work on, whether it's hips or knees or necks or whatever. Um, But that people are taking more care about it earlier on. And young guys are seeing, you know, more experienced guys do it. And like 
sharing it. Again, like to get back to some of these debates, you don't have to inject yourself with anything. You don't have to swallow a pill. I mean, there might be some kind of multivitamin in some of these regimens or whatever the case, but you get the idea. Like if you're doing ice baths and you're making sure that your sleeping is on point and you're making sure your hydration is on point and you're, and you're eating correctly and all these other things, and this goes hand in hand to a degree with weight cutting and whatnot. I used to see guys, they would just, I mean, you know, when I first got into the sport around like 04, 05, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, being in gyms, you know, guys would cut weight and then put put the IV in or cut weight and then just have some Pedialyte and then that would just be it and they would eat shit and like, I knew guys who were UFC fighters who were eating McDonald's in camp because they would just train like fucking maniacs to burn it off rather than doing like a little less laborious training and then getting your diet built in, which by the way is going to have, you know, more micronutrients anyway, like all these kinds of steps. There's still a long way to go. I'm sure. I'm sure if you talk to people in the space, they would have tons of complaints about all things athletes could do. But if we're looking for longevity and why you're seeing it with some of these older guys, I'm telling you, man, I'm telling you the preventative and the maintenance care that these guys put in in terms of rehab and rest and, and, uh, that sort of thing. It's gotten way, way better. You could still say it's still in the Stone Ages relative to where it needs to be, but for the elite guys, that did not nearly used to be what it is today. Not nearly, not nearly. Even just even in the span of fifteen years, even even just that, like I can distinctly remember in two thousand seven, I do not see people talking about it, putting resources behind those air what are they, the air tech things where they put their legs in there and it the hyperbaric chambers and all that stuff. And some of it's fallen by the wayside and some of it's not. But as a general rule, as an orientation, you see significantly more um, rehab, rehabilitative care, let's say, involved in uh, training than you ever did. In, that's, in, that's in my experience. That would be the first thing I would point to. Uh, I'll answer this one because I don't really mind. Look, I was listening to an episode of your live chat from several months back. In it, you discussed having... What sounded like severe anxiety. Yeah, fuckers, I live with it. Are you currently in therapy and would you consider taking medicine that might help your anxiety? Apologies if too personal. Um, I am currently looking for someone actually and I can't find anyone that is affordable. Everyone that I wanted to see who I thought would be a better fit for me, it's out of my network and it's like $400 for a consultation. Like, no, I'm not, if I'm insurance, I'm not doing that. I can't pay that. And then each one, each subsequent time is like three. Like, no, I cannot do that. I cannot afford that. So I am looking for one, but candidly, like everyone in my network, and maybe I'm being too picky, I don't know. Um, they, I don't know. They don't, I don't really want to talk to those motherfuckers, Rick, to be quite honest with you. Like, I don't. So I, I'm, I'm in the process of it. And nothing is exactly like super wrong. I, I, I've, all, I've I had anxiety all my life, you know, in different ways. And it's not new. I'm going to take this fucking thing off. Um, but I, I could use I could use uh, you know a specialist care at the moment, and I'm trying to find one. Trying to find one. All right. So when, this guy's from Paris. Uh, I was wondering if you had any advice for someone who's kind of lost for choosing his professional path. I find interest in pretty much everything, but not to a point to see a career in it. What can I do to see things clear and not ending up in a soulless and meaningless job like many do? Um, well, it would really depend on your age, um, to be quite honest with you. Without knowing your age, it's a little hard for me to give very specific advice. 
around this particular matter, but I would just tell you something as a general rule. Um, you got to experiment a little bit. You got to experiment a little bit. You got to try things. You got to go work in an office, see if it's like, eh, it's not as bad as I thought it might have been. Or conversely, like, okay, that's definitely not for me. Uh, Glover Teixeira had this quote, and it's a little bit different in the way in which he meant it, but it applies a lot of different ways. It's like, you don't really know who you are until you know what you're not. That is a very clarifying way to think about it because I have found that a lot of times in life when I was interested in something, sometimes, yes, I would try it and it would be love at first sight and then it was off to the races. But that's actually pretty rare. It's pretty rare. That doesn't happen all that often. What I have mostly found, this is why you have to date around too to like find a suitable partner because what I really discovered was that I would enter into a lot of things that I was like, wow, after a time, I really don't like this. Or right away, I didn't like this. Or, you know, again, some things you didn't like right at front, you didn't like a little bit later. And this is why I said age is relevant, because if you're in your 40s, I probably have a very different set of considerations to give you. But if you're young enough, and this is relevant enough to you, you got to go try. You got to go try stuff. You got to go, tr- you have to, like, how do you know you don't like working outside unless you do it? How do you know you don't like working in an office? How do you know you don't want to be an engineer if you don't like, I mean, again, some of this stuff, there's going to be limits to what you can do, but I'm just sort of pointing out what you basically have to find out is like, you have to be honest with yourself and your limitations. I will give you a very clear example. Um, I was a very good test taker in school. I was not so great with doing, I've, I've talked about this on Morning Combat. I was not so great at, you know, being a rigorously uh, thorough student in terms of homework and that sort of a thing. So my grades were okay. They were not great. My test scores were all very high. And that was ultimately what saved me in the end. But I kind of came to like a little bit of peace about that because it sort of told me like in the classes I did the very best in, right? What was the common denominator? The common denominator was that I cared about the subject matter. And not to a heavy degree. Not like, oh my God, I loved European history. No, I liked it a lot. Okay, why did I like it? Well, one... I enjoyed learning some of those things. I found them clarifying and interesting to my life. The other one was I seemed to have a bit of a knack for it. Um, I could do well on the assignments. So there was a there was a little bit of, um, you know, I could I could succeed in this environment. You know, that, that, that it wasn't a super struggle to do it. And so I just decided to sort of pursue things along those lines. And, and it went from there. But in terms of my jobs, I had a lot of different jobs before I settled. I, I, did, I wasn't like... SB Nation or Vox at the time didn't hire me full time until 2011. I was 31 before I had a full time job in MMA. 31, like I got a late start, and then I had all those years of whatever you want to say. But like I, I got a late start in full time, and I was I was running one of their major sites before that uh, in Bloody Elbow with with Nate Wilcox. But they didn't offer me full time employment until 2011. It took a long time. I, I signed with them in 2006 or seven. So I had like four or five years where I just had to like try this stuff and I was doing other jobs the whole time. Um, you have to try. You have to go and try. I, unless you have a very if, – if you know who you are, then it makes some of these questions a little bit more answerable. But it sounds to me like you just don't really know who you are when there's nothing wrong with that. Most people don't. And I'm not saying that I've figured it out either. But there are a few things that I've seen over the course of my life now repeat themselves. And now when they repeat themselves, I can have a much better handle on what the best answer is for me because I've seen this movie in some ways or another before. But you need to go and experience. You have to go and just try. You have to go and see like what are you, what ultimately um, uh, are you best suited for? Because that's what really you'll be able to do over the long term. Something you 
are you know not naturally amazing at, but you have some occupational competency. Uh, the subject matter is at least reasonably interesting. But then you have to think about, okay, taking those two considerations, what can I do to like really have a uh, fruitful career over a long span of time? What's going to get me the most amount of money if that matters to you? Where do I want to live? What kind of working conditions? Do I want to work inside a factory? Do I want to work inside of a farm? Do I want to work inside of an office? Do I want to work on the street or whatever? You have to go do. You have to go try. Um, but if you're not young, I, I, I don't know that this would be very valuable to you. I'm currently training heavy and bulking here in the down under. Shouts to Australia. How do you improve your bench? You do a lot of it. Do you need a spotter to keep improving? Not necessarily. Is it weird to ask people in your gym to spot you? Not necessarily, but I tend to avoid it. At my small frame of 5 foot 8 inches, I'm benching 100 kilos, 220 for 5 reps. Okay, that's pretty good. But I'm a bit afraid of increasing the weight. So get dumbbells. Um, dude, there's all kinds of ways you can increase your bench. You can work on all of the accessory muscles. You can work on a lightweight on the mechanical motion. Dude, you should work on everything in your bench. Are your heels on the ground when you bench? How does your arch, and not your arch of your lower back, but your arch of your thoracic spine look? You know, are your shoulders locked in all the way? How clean are your mechanics? Like, dude, the bar path should not be straight. It should be slightly angled on a bench press. Like, there's a, how's your grip? Like, dude, you could, man, there's a lot. Of, you, by the way, you should make sure your grip is as tight as possible. Or, well, some people don't teach that, but I like that when it's taught. When I white knuckle, I get much more strength on the bar, and I feel like I can bend it a little bit more. Like, there's all kinds of ways. Um, but really what you're talking about is effective programming. How do you program in weight increases? You shouldn't be testing your one rep max hardly at all, dude. That should come at the end of a 12-week cycle or even like a, a smaller four-week cycle or something like that. You have these mesocycles and, and then in them the macro, the, 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 it was microcycles, macrocycles, and mesocycles. Um, dude, what's the book? What's the book um, from Juggernaut Training Systems? This is what you need. Cheap. Cheap. And I think they shipped to Australia. They have, um, here, shop, books. What do you need? Scientific principles of strength training. 50 bucks, 50 US bucks. That's all you need. That's all you need. There you go. Scientific principles of strength training. I think Chad Wesley Smith wrote it. Uh, and maybe some other folks too. That's all you need. You can get it on paperback. You can get it on ebook. You can download that fucker tonight. You'll be off to the races, my friend. Question about open scoring. I personally am skeptical that it would help. I think we would end up in situations where a fighter would see they are ahead by two rounds heading into the final round and would take it easy to close out the fight and win by decision. Yes, again, we need to just sort of see this tested. Mm -hmm. The current setup leaves some doubt in fighters' minds. There is an argument also to be made that, like, dude, part of what makes combat sports thrilling is the mystery of the decision. Like holding that and then revealing it all in one go when the fighters are looking at the screen not only creates for a dramatic moment, but this is the thing that gives life the the anticipation, the juiciness, the controversy. It adds so much to it all along the way. I, I'm pretty sympathetic to that argument. Like it's one of those things where like if you're really going down the line about what you should do in a sport, if you're gonna treat it like it's a sport. We should treat it like a sport in every possible way. Then you should probably have open scoring if you if you believe that in 
its ultimate logical coherent conclusion yeah there probably should be open scoring but you know it's not just a sport it is an entertainment product and while that could be unfair to the fighters and of course this is a broader conversation that has to be had there are reasons to not follow a strict sporting path to facilitate your goals um to maximize entertainment. Now, you can't make decisions all the time that maximize entertainment, much in the same way that you could not maximize decisions all the time that maximize just the sporting aspect of it. There's a trade-off in either direction. But I'm sympathetic to the idea that while it is not fair under strict sporting criteria, that it ultimately actually elevates the consumer product in a pretty dramatic way. I'm actually sympathetic to that. I think that's pretty strong. If Francis can get out of his contract by just sitting out, which I think most believe he can, why doesn't he just do this to take a boxing match? Yeah, that's, that's what he's going to do, right? Like, Or at least he's going to threaten it. Make his 10 to 20 million payday and then go into MMA free agency. Why wouldn't the UFC re-sign him, win or lose? Well, if he won, they might re-sign him. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the UFC wants to do. I don't know how they want to play this one because this is a little bit new. I watched Randy Couture try and sue his way to get out of a contract, and the UFC went to the mat white knuckle with him, and they won. Or at a bare minimum, they reached some kind of agreement or settlement to stop it, whatever the case may be. Um, but the contracts have slowly been uh, gotten a little bit more favorable over time due to consumer pressure and due to media pressure, frankly. And so there are now, it is believed, a clause, even with Champion in his contract, that he could wait it out, and then go see what's up. First of all, the UFC could take him to court. I don't think that they would, but it's possible, right? Because all of this rests on contractual interpretation. They could potentially ask a court for an injunction and then have them decide what constitutes, what, what this phrase in the contract actually really means. Does it mean that he is free? Does it not? Because if it means that he is free and can walk... Um, that could be quite bad for their product if other fighters under similar circumstances wanted to try it. Now, there's not many fighters under similar circumstances, but the ones who would be would be quite valuable to the company. In case of Francis, he's a heavyweight champ. Um, but the question is, like, what will UFC do to retain him? Because obviously, I don't think they would. I don't think UFC wants to would prefer a world where he's not fighting for them, and then fighting in boxing matches that are probably ones where he's going to lose. I don't think that they feel like that's best for them either. So my hunch is they want to retain him, but they can't retain him at the cost at which he could probably make money from the Tyson Fury fight. So who's going to, what's going to happen here? That's the central tension, is what kind of uh, compensation package would UFC offer him such that it would deter him wanting to test case this interpretation of whatever's in his sunset clause in his contract? Um and will they try? And will they try? Because when guys have gone to the mat in cases where there was the language was pretty clear, it has blown up in their face in the worst way possible. Um, how does the UFC want to play a situation where a guy has a much smarter approach about how to craft an exit? I don't know the answer to that. I, re I don't think I've ever seen that. Not, not in this way. And the one time that Gilbert Melendez tried with Bellator making him an offer, UFC was able to match it or exceed it or whatever. And so he was able to play them off of each other, but he got the job done. There was a brief moment under the Bjorn Rebney 
Bellator era where he was able to like make an, uh, a bid on Gilbert Melendez and UFC retained him. Um, you know, it, it, it has been done, but Gilbert couldn't command via leverage at that time anyway, certainly what Francis could in theory command by having some giant fight with Tyson Fury. So it is going to be very interesting. It is going to be very interesting. All right, hang on. Uh, hi, Luke. Although I agree with the notion that there needs to be some gun legislation, I have heard no unrealistic legislation. I've heard n no or unrealistic legislation from the people who say change needs to happen. I don't think that's true. I find this debate very similar to the Democrats saying they'll stop open borders and have border security, but no policies have been put in place to reduce the numbers of Ill illegal migration. Well, uh, I would, first of all, uh, legal immigration has fallen off a fucking cliff. Um, and that's bad because those are the folks that you're actually, for the most part, going to want to um, either give space to or uh, offer a, a place to live long term and become citizens. Uh, these are like, you know, not in every case, but these are much more people who are coming here on visas are going to be much more likely to be contributors to society than not. But um, putting aside the, the the immigration debate for just a second, I could flip that right around and say all of these claims about single entry points for schools and in certain cases, single exit points. I mean, this is truly, there's no, there's no federal plan for this at all. It's not like there's the, you know, pick a Demo or pick a Republican Senator. There's no, there's no, um, you know, McConnell plan that they've, they've gone through this process. They've outlined what it would take to do all this across the roughly 84,000, elementary public schools in the United States to, to have an actual plan to solve this problem. Like that doesn't exist either. So all of these folks saying this on social media or television are just, they're just making shit up. There's, there's nothing to that either. So if you're, if you'd like to make this point about the failure of either party to engage in much more than rhetoric, then fine. I will certainly grant that. Yeah. I mean the part, this, uh, this thing in Texas is maybe the one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. I feel pretty strong about saying that. Um, certainly, Sandy Hook was worse uh, in the sense that it was 26 lives, I guess. But this was uh, bad in every way. Um, I just don't... I Yeah, this is not... Um, I don't really know what to say, to be honest with you. This is... Um, Iraq and the invasion of Iraq... Um, you know who you attribute blame to in that is is significantly more uh, in some ways specific and in other ways not because you know, ultimately who's responsible for that George Bush and you know Dick Cheney and Paul Wolfowitz and the various folks therein uh, Donald Rumsfeld you name it but there was also just a lot of apparatchik support that went into making the case for what was basically just a crime against humanity is really what that was um, and so. You know, if you want to say that's the biggest moral horror of my lifetime um, and, and most egregious moral failure, maybe you could say that. But I mean domestically what we've done to each other. If I can think if I can think of what would be the most egregious moral failure America has had in my lifetime, letting 18 or 19 children in this particular one instance or just sort of generally saying that this is the price of some imagined state of glorious freedom. This is the tax we have to pay where... 
Uh, children were, will basically, as a function of routine in this country, be butchered in their own schools. These are this is a sick view, and it's an it's a it's a view of total madness. There is no middle ground really on this idea. It's it's total nonsense. Um, Arming teachers is a disastrous idea. There is, again, there is no federal plan for it. There's no plan you could point to. There is no Tom Cotton, let's arm teachers plan that you could go vote on. No one has really thought this through whatsoever. These are just nonsense talking points. Listen, um, the reality is with this situation, um, you know, let's, let's let's think this through for just a second. Let's imagine that we accept that the answer to the situation is actually securitizing, essentially, uh, elementary schools. Okay, what would that cost? Right. That's what I mentioned before, 85,000 schools that would put roughly, I saw some estimates that were done that would have, just to, just to uh, if we were really going to do this, like we're going to make sure that we put enough officers with training and resources in place in all of our elementary schools to do this. It would have taken about 350,000 officers to do that. Now, that's just the 85,000 elementary schools. That would not include uh, middle schools, and that would not include high schools. I can only imagine what the toll would be to do that. So, number one, it would be an extraordinary expansion, not of the administrative state, although that would come apart along with it as well, but a vast expansion in the American police state. We are already the, the folks who criminalize everything the most out of, uh, in terms of what we put people in jail for out of any other nation, quite literally. Right? So this is already a place where everything is criminalized in ways that it should not be. That has a disproportionate effect on people that it shouldn't. And now the suggestion is we're going to hire roughly, just for elementary schools, God knows what's going to happen to middle or high schools, 350,000 officers. Did you guys see that there is a SWAT team in this town that was hit, Uvalde, or how do you pronounce the, the street? I forget. Um, it is pronounced. Uh, yeah, Uvalde is, is how they say it. They already had a, a massive increase in their spending in the state to or in their city uh, and to facilitate their own SWAT team and disaster relief and uh, disaster response teams, all of which completely failed. So we're not even talking about the fact that if you want to put all these things in place, that's one cost. There's another question of like how effective it ends up being, number one. Number two, who the fuck is going to pay for all of this? And again, we are only talking about the 85,000 elementary schools, not the other points of vulnerability uh, elsewhere in the American educational system. We're going to securitize all of that. Number one, as I mentioned, this would be prohibitively expensive. I don't even know if you could find 350,000 police officers and train them to do the job correctly. More, more to the point, um, all kinds of associated harms would follow where, you know, arming teachers, I'm sure that this will never result in a teacher pulling a gun on a student, um, particularly a student of color in any kind of situation that American schools find themselves in all the time or that this process of securitization would actually even work or that you can do it with, you know, without multiple points of egress. I don't know even if that a fire marshal would agree to that. Moreover, these schools are already built. You're going to retrofit them. I mean, this is the this is only a suggestion from people who just are not taking this problem seriously. This is not a resolvable problem. And I have to say it is very, very, very funny to me that the folks who thought that putting a mask over their face temporarily in public or in various other places such as planes, this was a massive abridgment of your freedom, and yet you are inviting an extraordinary 
extension of the police state into our schools. Because if you're really going to do it at the elementary schools, you have to do it at the middle and the high school level as well. Probably colleges, public colleges at some point too, right? Because about what you know, it, it, this is sort of the 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 logical conclusion, and you would have to follow where all the soft targets would be at that point. Um, the mask is an abridgment of your freedom, but inviting <laughs> the security state into all 85,000, 84,000 elementary public schools, this is, not, this is not an abridgment of potential freedoms for all kinds of folks in all kinds of scenarios. This is, this is, the, this is, the, uh, this is the smaller government option between that and wearing a mask. I mean, this is why it's like I didn't take a lot of you fuckers seriously about your COVID pushback. There's plenty of COVID pushback to make. We know much more now than we did at the beginning of March of 2020. But when folks accuse the people who didn't want to ascribe to basic means of public health for being bad faith actors, this is why. Because you're not consistent. None of you are, very few of you are consistent across this. The, the, if you were screaming about masks, boy, the, the, uh, the concept of inviting the police and sheriff's department into your schools in full-throated, securitized, this is Baghdad, this is the green zone kind of ways is a fucking joke. It's a joke. You couldn't possibly rationalize it if your life depended on it. You cannot do it. This is the solution? Folks, the benefit of living in a society that has um, effective policy and can be reasonably... Like, you can't have public schools built in the way that they have been built for the last century plus, attended in the way they are attended to, and arranged in the way socially that they're arranged in a world where they can be gunned down quite this easily. Right? The, the benefit of having a peaceful society that um, can manage its affairs and provide a reasonable degree of security, the benefit of that is you can then have public schools where you don't have to securitize them. Now, I grant that even in the short run, some securitization is inevitable and frankly, probably necessary because, boy, we have done quite a number on ourselves, haven't we? So this is why it's like, I don't really think of it in terms of these ridiculous talking points that you guys are probably on either side hearing on television. It's not. like Okay, let's think of what our actual probable technocratic solutions such that any are available to us. The idea of arming teachers and or the single points of entry and exits, this is just nonsense. Yes, I know that there are sort of existing in certain ways. For example, I even went to a high school that had a single point of entrance. But even then, not in some kind of securitized way, it was just a way to funnel everyone in for like headcount cases or whatever the case may be. Um, just, just to sort of make sure that there was some observation of the student body, not to deflect from fucking saving private ryan gunfire i mean this is what do you, folks and just think about this logically for just a second even if you were to be able to securitize all eighty-five thousand elementary schools and the tens of thousands of middle schools and the tens of thousands of american high schools are we under assumption that this saves anything i went to the zoo today i told you guys this morning there were hundreds of kids in school uniforms all there on field trips you cannot securitize in a peaceful democratic place. I suppose if you want to have everything be like the green zone in Baghdad, you can have a different conversation. But if you want to live in a peaceful society, um, <laughs> you have to take a certain amount of policy measures that lead to those outcomes, or at least put you on a much better uh, footing to get there. You cannot claim that you live in a place of freedom and then decide what the answer is to securitize every aspect of your life. What about outdoor cafes? What about grocery stores? These are happening. What about places of worship? These are happening in the most mundane 
of all ordinary human interactions, if your response to this is we should put body armor and shields on everything, I don't think you're probably thinking of all the actual rational solutions to this. And yes, not all uh, measures of gun control work or work evenly or sometimes work at all. They are, it is an, it is a, it is a, um, it is a, it is a vast array of choices uh, that we can make. It is a vast array of different policy implementations that will work unevenly. It is a vast array of, um, in many cases, conflicting decisions that are made. And some of them will undercut the other ones, especially in a federal society that we live, where California can have different states or different laws, excuse me, than Alabama can have different rules than New York can have different rules. I mean, all of these things are going to play a role, right? What did they find in Chicago when they began to confiscate weapons? Um, the vast majority of them came from outside the state, including places like Mississippi and Alabama. Only one state in the union, California, is the only one that does gun research to such to the extent that they are now being sued by the NRA for sharing that gun research with other accredited research agencies. There's a full-throated effort to make you believe that guns are a religious, um, uh, sac not sacrament, a religious object that simply could not be contained. Right? There is no policy that would work in any kind of way to, to meaningfully address this. I mean, this is true fucking deranged nonsense. I, I, I can't believe people think this. I'm perfectly willing to believe that there are certain measures that don't work or don't work all that well. Fine, they don't work all that well. What gun owners are basically afraid of is that there is going to be a series of measures taken that will either reduce the, the ability to have certain kinds of weapons, um, the ability to own them, not outright, but potentially uh, in terms of having guns at all, but certainly making guns difficult to obtain, um, use cases when they can be involved, concealed carry versus not. What, but the basic answer on any form of gun control is to reduce or eliminate some forms of this, and that, that's what all of this comes down to. When they say it, don't, it doesn't work, what they're talking about is saying, oh, it wouldn't reduce any kind of illegal gun crime. It would only reduce legal gun, legal gun ownership or legal gun use. Folks, I got to tell you, um, having a gun in the home is a risk factor for a greater series of uh, incidents or injuries um, throughout the course of however long that gun is in the house. That's a direct correlation. It's like driving a motorcycle. Same kind of thing. If you drive a motorcycle, you may have a situation where it never really bothers you, but the risk factors associated with motorcycle use, particularly for men under the age of 25, is extremely high. That's why your insurance premiums go up when you buy one. Right, so these are all risk factors. Even that, even first of all, I don't buy at all that it would only affect illegal versus legal. But the reality is, among your technocratic solutions, arming and shielding and securitizing every element of what is supposed to be the benefit of a free society, to me, has it thinking backwards a little bit. And so, if you want to make the case that there were certain policy interventions in various states that were ineffective or didn't work or actually damaged people who were intelligent use cases for guns, yes, fine, I'm perfectly willing to believe that. Uh, and there's another comment about it I'll have in just a second, but this idea that like guns are this magical thing that we have no real capacity to meaningfully control either in use cases, possession, or sales is just nonsense. <laughs> like it is matter-of-factly not true at all. Um, there's all kinds of now, now we do have a different kind of set of problems but in, in that there is a, a gun for every man woman and child in this country and then some so we are awash in them it would take long-term policy intervention which is why you know i would if you're a gun owner especially if you're an intelligent use case gun owner i, I would say you probably have very little to worry about in terms of any kind of change into the laws because this is a country where um, the sclerotic institutions no longer have any i mean remember when elon musk, elon musk was like the laws reflect the um the will of the people it's like dude are you a fucking did you take freshman poli sci and then drop out like 
this is naive to the point of absurd to even think such a thing. Anyway, um, so we have different problems in terms of how you address the situation because in these other places that didn't go down this wretched, completely backwards path, they don't have to worry about the kinds of massive uh, gun ubiquity that we do in this country. That's simply the reality. Now, there is a couple of things that you should think about here that are different than the standard gun debate that I grew up with in the 1990s, namely. Number one, gun ownership in, has gone up dramatically since Obama took office. I mean, I can, I can only imagine what the, what the um, correlation is there. Why, why would America go? It was already going up, but it went super spiked after Obama got elected. Boy, what could be the, what could be the impetus there? Hmm, I wonder. More to the point, um, gun ownership has gone up in particular among women and has gone up a lot among uh, African-American, particularly African-American men. But when I say gun ownership, I mean, you know, let's be very clear about this for the women, for the men, whoever, legal, in many cases, gun trained, gun safety courses, that kind of a thing. Um, who is her name? Jennifer Carlson has done a lot of work on this where she went and she did all the gun safety uh, training and talked and did a bunch of research on on this and found that like basically why was it going up among these populations? It was typically the province of men, more so white men than, than, than others. But you know, now it's becoming much more diverse across gun ownership ranges and, uh, or, uh, age ranges and, and gender types. And, um, and the answer was that it was essentially an increasing American sense of the failure of the state to protect them. Basically, that they, whether it was teetering market conditions and that bringing crime to a neighborhood, whether it was the police don't show up on time, whether it was you name it, it was this pervasive sense among these populations that had typically resisted gun ownership leaning into it uh, because they felt like that was the measure of last resort. You're not going to get any kind of meaningful change until those kinds of concerns are assuaged. So, you know, it, there was a thing I read from a two-star general talking about the health of the Russian military, and he made a point that was pretty insightful. He was like, listen, if you have a country that is run, you know, like as a kleptocracy, you, their military could be good, but it's always going to be limited because you can't create this and have this existing apparatus of government function in the case of a military separate and siloed off from the way in which the government runs more generally, especially if it's, if, 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 you know, kleptocracy or, you know, cronyism or whatever is featured into how the government is run, it's going to affect every part of how the government operates. And that was actually bleeding into the Russian military. That was one of the ways in which they explained it. like the health of the political, uh, sort of environment, the political economy of a country, it carries over into everything else. This is true here in America too. Like, I have seen I have seen a lot of intelligent use cases with veterans that I know. I have seen it. Um, I know it can be done. I know that actual gun owners who lock it away safely, who have taken safety courses, who know how to use it, who don't, who have never pull it out when there's anything other than the most ab absurd need for it. Right? Like I know these people. I've seen it. Like I believe in that thing that existing, and I think actually laws passing quite to the contrary, wouldn't really affect them all that much. But yeah, like the reality about gun ownership is that it will have to reduce some measure of possession, some measure of use cases, and some measure of sales. That is simply how it has to be. That is how you regulate something. That's what tariffs in one measure or another, um, uh, in terms of the larger expansive things do. Like uh, the, all of these things can be, in fact, like, you want me to believe that like drugs can be regulated very, very effectively and guns can't like drugs are much easier to get in and out of places, much easier to smuggle, much easier. You can grow a fucking one out of the ground. I guess you have ghost guns now, but you know, you can, drugs are very, very easy relative to 
uh, weapons to traffic and get through everything. So I know this will piss off a lot of people, but the simple reality is all of the solutions that are proffered by people who are ragingly pro-gun as a way to address these problems, all they essentially do that I can see, especially this case of the elementary schools, they're, they're deeply unrealistic. They are a total abdication of all of the principles that they claim that they told me they believed in when COVID was around, a total abdication of that. I mean, it couldn't be more contradictory if you tried. So they're not feasible. They're insanely expensive. It's a massive encroachment of the police state. And by the way, you had all of this in this place, and the cops did fuck all. They didn't do a thing except watch those kids get fucking butchered. It doesn't even, like, that doesn't work. That doesn't, for sure, we know that doesn't work. Um. Aside, you know, and and these we're we're, not, we're gonna you know, I, didn't some of you tell me you didn't want to send forty billion to Ukraine, but you want to spend the billions over years it would take to put three hundred plus thousand cops in eighty four thousand schools again to say nothing of middle and high schools. This is the smarter, leaner policy. This is how we can reinvest in our. How the fuck can we reinvest in our any of our cities? If this administrative slash police state that we need to grow to securitize something that we just took for granted under a free society condition, how are we going to pay for any of these other things? I mean, this is total nonsense. So once you recognize that those claims are absurd, that certainly more guns in no way, shape, or form actually reduce the amount of violence that we have in a society. It actually increases them. And by the way, there's all different kinds of gun violence. There's the mass shootings. There's handgun violence. There's uh, domestic violence. uh, you know, violence related to weaponry. In the case of my own family, I am a victim. Well, I'm not, I'm not a victim of gun crime, but my mother took her own life with a weapon, with a firearm, which is then a complicated story because, you know, there was a lot of mental health issues there I could certainly recognize. And I do think people should have the right to end their life. But we can also recognize that people who are risk factors for this, having easy access to firearms, is just going to make suicides a lot higher here by virtue of that as well, right? This is a function of, gu- of gun, not crime, but gun death, gun injury, that kind of thing. All of this is, all of this is related to possession, use, and sales. Like that's some measure of that. Whatever you want to pick, some measure of that has to be enforced. And unless you're willing to say, "I'm okay with that," and believe me, I can tell you that I, I, I'm I'm very much okay with that. Um, get your hearts and prayers. Get your thoughts and prayers ready. You're gonna need them. All right. From one washed dad in his early 40s to another, what author would you consider to be the most influential in your development in going from adolescent to adult? Um, I mean, I read Ayn Rand a lot at that time, but I wouldn't say that that really (laughs) stayed with me. Um, Probably Nozick. I've talked about this before. Robert Hume. Another one. Excuse me. David Hume. What am I saying? Um, boy, those two. Uh, Luke, what is Anthony Smith's best path to victory against Ankalaev? Or maybe what is it about Ankalaev's game that makes him such a favorite? I know it's a tough fight for Smith, but a lot of analysts almost talking about this fight as if it's an automatic W for Ankalaev. Even though Smith's been in the game a long time, he's only 33 and is one of the most well-rounded light heavyweights in the division. I think he poses a sterner test than people give him credit for. Um, activity... Um, the clinch, I actually think he'd be really strong in the clinch. 
I wouldn't want to see prolong if, if for his chances. I wouldn't want to see him prolonged. Um, at distance striking, I think that might go poorly. But mixing it up, going to the body, fighting inside the clinch range, because um, Ankalaev wants to like find like very favorable scenarios. I can be on top on the ground or slightly on the back or working behind my jab. That's what he prefers. And he prefers to have like that risk somewhat managed. You got to you gotta f- bring the fight inside of all of that a little bit, I think. Body work, some leg kicking, but he can do that too. But um, you can play the outside game as well. You can even try the wrestling game to an extent on, you know, finding the back yourself. But I think part of it would just be fighting inside in the clinch a little bit. And that's easier said than done too. But actually, Spitz got a really good clinch. All right, it's 4.05. Let us see. I'm sure there's a bunch of y'all angry with me. That's fine. That's, I'm used to it. Um, if you have any donation, I'll take a look at the questions now and see what y'all got. All right. In, is Nunez's legacy similar to the Pitbulls? That is, the reason her rematch is at the same uh, weight class, not 145. Bellator let Pitbull vacate 155 to his bro. Both AJ and Pena won dominantly. Example, TJ's uh, rematch after he lost to Cejudo was going to be at 135. Um, well, the Pit, well, Pit, well, the Pitbull brothers have separate legacies, which is to say that uh, Patricio's is not as good as Patricio's. I think it's pretty fair to say. So in that sense, I couldn't really combine them. They're pretty different. And yes, I sort of see what you mean with this comparison, but I would just sort of say that, yeah, they're they're a little different. They're a little different. It's just they don't quite line up in the way you're talking about. Uh, have you always been uh, hardworking, or is that something that came naturally upon covering a passion? How are you able to avoid burnout? Yeah, so that's the other part, right? This came from this was the thing I had to deal with, dude. If it's something I don't really like, I I'm kind of lazy, to be honest with you. Like, I hate to say it that way, but I I you know. This is me supposed to be being honest with you guys. I'm not, I'm kind of lazy when it comes to shit I, I don't like. I'm like Chief Keef that way, you know? <laughs> That's that shit I don't like, right? Uh, and I don't, I don't really do a whole lot of it under those use cases. Um, so the, what I realized about me was that if I wanted to work hard to get ahead and I knew I needed to, I, 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 and some people are different, I needed to find something that I, I knew I could work hard in. This was something I knew I could work hard in. And so that it didn't make hard work difficult. It just, I, I wanted to do the work, right? If I, if I had to constantly force myself to do the work, I don't know that I could do it. I don't have that kind of discipline. Um, this person says, I've become bored with Apex fight nights and the pay-per-views seem to be not as stacked as last year or the year before. Is the UFC becoming far too top-heavy? Is it a problem for the future? What do you mean by top-heavy? Like there's only like four or five guys and then that's it. Um, listen, the the sport is in a bit of a, not a downswing, but like the sport when the pandemic was on for a lot of different reasons was kind of hot. And then it was also hot in 2021, not least of which was Connor was around, right? There was part of that as well. Um, so we're not there yet. And I, and I know you guys don't like him, but in terms of like our own traffic, like Jake Paul and Connor fought like once in the, like, you know, it was like a, they were like fighting once every quarter or something. It was a strong year. We're down from that a little bit. So it would kind of speak to your point that maybe there is a little bit of top heaviness, but I would also say these sort of cycles, like this isn't boom and bust in the same way, 
But yes, I don't think that the fights they're making right now are naturally as interesting to all the fans. You know, Izzy versus Costa had a, was a lot more interesting before it happened anyway than Izzy versus Jared Cannonier. But it could be that the Cannonier fight's actually way better. You know, so I understand your point. I think there's a little bit to what you can... What you what, there's Very few fighters really move the needle. And when they're all moving and they're doing big things... Man, everything's on fire. Right now, it doesn't feel quite like that. doesn't feel quite like that. Tyson Fury is not competing in boxing right now. Canelo just lost. Um, but in the MMA side of things, you know, Connor's not around. Um, you know, Charles kind of lost his belt, although that was controversial as well. But we don't really have that same level of, like, elite star. So what I would say is just wait a little bit. Just wait a little bit, and some of this might come back in, in a few months. It, it, I've seen these before. They come and they go. When they're hot, they stay hot for a while. And when they're cold, they tend to stay cold for at least a little bit too. So just ride it out. Ride it out a little bit. The Apex fights, though, is a little bit different. We, we should have a conversation about that. That is getting old. Is it not? That's getting old. Like, and I get the I get why they're doing it, and it makes all the sense in the world, but does anyone else feel like... I don't hate the Apex fights, but like... Ugh, they're kind of feeling a little bit mundane. Uh, Luke, I've seen your tweet about Stavros um, Halikas, I think is how you pronounce his name, and his roasting of DC. He, every town he goes to, you guys know the stand-up comedian is? He's got this big old belly, and he's got a funny look, but he's hilarious. He seems like he's pretty smart, too. And every time he goes to, like, Austin, he'll shit on Austin. If he goes to Portland, he'll shit on Portland. Anyway, he came to the DC Improv, and he shit on DC. And his, like, insulting of it was <laughs> very good. Very good. Uh, can you go more in depth to any extent you can about why you like what you liked in it? So if you guys didn't see the bit, I won't ruin the whole thing. But he basically talks about how like there's people here doing basically boring but very serious evil, uh, which he's 100% right about. And uh, it goes on from there. People kept saying like, oh, have you listened to his podcast, Come Town? I have not. I've not listened. I've, I, I only found him, I guess hit one of his videos popped up on my feed, on my like YouTube feed. And I checked it out, and it was really funny, so I just kept going. And he has, like, a bunch of these, like, not just city roasting, but, like, a lot of, he posts a lot of crowd work on his YouTube channel. I've never even heard his podcast. I just saw, I've just been following his YouTube stuff, and it's fucking hilarious. I should have gone to see him, but... Again, someone asking, I saw you tweeted a clip of St uh, Stavy or Stavy Baby, however he pronounces it. Thoughts on his podcast? I guess I have to listen to it, because his stand-up is awesome. He's very funny. Uh, how is Barbus? Haven't heard about anything from him in a while. He's good, bro. He's around here somewhere. I'll bring him on the next show. I'll bring him on the next show. We we uh, we walk regularly. We went for uh, three and a half miles the other day. It was a nice little walk with my buddy. He was tired as shit. I wore his ass out. He's he's old now. He's um he's probably eleven or twelve. I mean, we got him at the at the pound, so it's hard to know exactly how old he is. But he's about eleven or twelve. He's old now. But he's he's in good condition. He's in good condition. Um, someone's asking if I could shout out their channel. All right, I'll pay, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if this dude's channel is, you know, let me see actually. It's just like, you know, pornography or something. No, no, it's okay. It's not Cameron F1. Y'all go check out Cameron F1. Thanks, bro. With Connor getting jacked, I can't help but see shades of Rockhold moving up to 205. He looked incredibly... He looked incredible beating Alvarez. 
I was there for that. Explosive and dynamic. Against Dustin was more plotting. Do you see the parallels? Yeah, but he was less plotting in the rubber match with Dustin until the whole injury happened. Now, you can make an assessment about why that did or didn't. But I, I agree with you. Like, getting up at 170, like 145, he was really nimble, but it was just unsustainable, right? And he had big power there. 155 coming up from 145, right around that like same time. It was amazing. It was amazing, right? Uh, but I agree with you. Like, when Rockwell went to 205, I was wrong. I thought, because we all think about it from the weight cut. Oh, well, he doesn't have to weight cut. He'll just perform better. But, like, will you perform better? I don't think that's necessarily true. In many cases, you'll perform better. You have less of that cut and the tax that you have to pay from that. But, dude, did you guys see how much extra muscle he had? He was looked fucking huge. He was, And, it, you know, great. Like, that's a great look. But, like, it would, I don't know. It served him very well. His his game was built on a style that his body told him to build it on, which was speed, nimbleness, footwork, you know, leaning, not kind of heavy, set, planted in, in the kind of front of people. That was not his style at all, and he had to pay for it. So, you know, until we see Connor at 170, I'm a little bit hesitant to declare that that's the way, but, like, do I have the same kind of concerns that you have in that way? Like, 100%. 100%. Uh, the VA said they might give you a 0% rating if you had anxiety all your life and served in the military. Very cheap mental health care for veterans. You know, I will go and look into that. I haven't thought about that. There's actually, and I'm not far from a, a VA hospital here. <laughs> well, one of the veterans took his life in the um, parking lot, I think, a year or two ago. Just, I mean, terrible, terrible. He actually went in and asked for care, and I either they denied him or told him to wait, one of the two, and he went back to his car and shot himself. Should the UFC have Grand Masters designation for fighters in the twilight of their career, meaning not in title contention but can sell fun farewell fights, versus other veteran fighters or even fresh prospects? See, I think labeling it is worse. If you la- it's like, dude, if your name is Grand Master, you should be teaching, not fighting, right? Like, I, I get that, you know, Yoda had to pull out the old lightsaber on Count Dooku and uh, Master Splinter had to kind of, you know, get it going a couple times, but the bulk of the work was done by the Ninja Turtles or whoever, right? You get the idea, like, uh, by the time you're Grand Master, you know, it's like, dude, I think you're telling people. I know I know that the way in which you're saying it is like you're lifting them up in a way. I get it, and I'm with you. It's fine, especially, the, you know, I, I just interviewed Demi and Maya this week. Fair enough, but the point I would make is, if you put that kind of label on, like, these are the old motherfuckers' fights. And you're like, well, they do that in jiu-jitsu. But jiu-jitsu is like, it doesn't have, you know, nearly the same amount of injuries. Um, you know, it's not the same kind of concern about brain trauma. You don't have to worry about people potentially dying uh, in the way that you would or, you know, suffering catastrophic injury. I'm sure those things have happened at Masters tournaments, but not really all that much. I think doing that in MMA, I don't know. One, I don't think there should be that much. The UFC's, the the percentage of the UFC's market that should be grandmaster fights should be as small as possible. Like, this is the UFC. It's the highest level. It should not really be the case that old guys can thrive there. It should be remarkable when old guys do. Different than rolling out the red carpet for that versus, you know, yes, giving Jim Miller fights that are competitive and UFC level guys but winnable but you know designating this is where the old fuckers are I mean I don't think that's a good idea for f- sports we can get hit in the head 
Uh, for the donk asking about professional life direction, check out the book um, by Hector Garcia. Solid insights for seeking out direction in life. I guess it's called Ikigai. Oh, is that a real fucking book or did I just do some stupid shit? Let's see. I can never tell with some of these dumbasses anymore. Uh, no, it's a book. Ikigai, The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life by Hector Garcia and some other dude. There you go. All right. Someone says, hardly ever catch these lives. Thanks for the hard work. Thank you. Uh, someone says, it is baffling to me that UFC announcers are not 100% clear in the judging criteria. Yes, very complicated, but this became a big sport. Taking judging courses should be a prerequisite. Do you agree? Well, it's a couple of things I would say. One is, do I think uh, the commentators must take judging courses? I don't know if they must take. I don't need the commentators to be like really good judges. Would be nice. But I don't need them to be. Like, I don't need their scorecards to be, like, super awesome every time. But what they should know is the criteria. Right? That's what they should know. Um, so whether you whether you should mandate it, uh, I'm a little less, I don't know if they should mandate it. That's a UFC decision, I guess. But it's in their best interest at a bare minimum. And the issue is not that, again, you're turning in these amazing scorecards. The issue would be, like, dude, if you're going to be talking about how these fights are going and you're going to be talking about what's happening in them and then weighing in on what the judges might be thinking your thinking doesn't ha always have to align with them in fact it never could right you're always going to be probably a little bit off one way or the other but the precepts by which you are judging should be identical to theirs that should be the same and you should be aware of what they are i think a lot of these guys don't realize that they need to know these things i mean here's the thing that i think is happening the people who constructed the scoring criteria did two things. One, they tried to make obviously a criteria that made sense, but something that would be judgeable, right? We have to, let's give the judges a, a system and a process and a criteria and this education around how judging should go and based on the things you're looking for in this order, right? Um, that's one thing that they did. Let's give them a, a toolkit to do that. The other thing they did was they put their own preferences, I think, a little bit on, yes, what judges should see, but like what they think matters to them in a fight. What matters? What, what do we value? How do we value it? Partly it's creating a criteria. Partly it's, of course, it's a function of implementation. Partly it's like, what are the values that actually undergird the the rules because there's a value judgment based into that. And I think what fighters think is, well, I know fighting better than these other people. Okay, fine. You do. And therefore the things I value in a fight should be reflected in the scoring criteria. Now that's a debate you can have. For example, I do not personally believe that the existing scoring criteria takes control and control time seriously enough, but it doesn't matter that I believe that at least not right now. What matters, especially if I was trying to tell the public about it, which I am, what matters is that I understand how the judges not merely see it, but you got to remember how the state teaches them, how the state instructs them to do this. The state doesn't hand them a piece of paper and say, tell me who won. They give them a course, many courses, a certification process, lots of experience. Then you get to the UFC level. They don't just happen. You have to earn your way up there. 
And then you get up there and then you are instructed to do this process in a certain way according to these values. That could be very different than what a fighter believes a fight should be judged on, what they value and what they think matters to them most. There's an asymmetry. There's a, there's a, there's a gap there between them. And that's where I think a lot of this is coming from. And I think the fighters, I'm not going to use the word arrogant, but I think that they are just under the assumption that because they have occupational competency about fighting, which of course they do, that this then leads them to be able to do, I mean, you hear this all the time, like, we should get more fighters who can ref. We should get more fighters who can judge. Listen, I'm not opposed to that. But fighting, while beneficial for refing, are separate skills. Fighting, while beneficial for judging, is a separate skill. That's why Dominic Cruz was on the MMA Hour. He's like, these guys have don't have never run the pipe on these moments and been elbowed here and known, known what it's like. Well, first of all, some of them have, but even if they haven't, Again, fine. I'm not here to say that that wouldn't give you a better information about how to make these choices. But at the same time, you have to make a choices in accordance with the mission you have been given, with the criteria you have to look at, and the instructions on how to obey it. That has, in many cases, almost nothing to do with what certain fighters think is important and valuable. So what's the cause of it? Should the fighters in the corners and the commentators take it upon themselves to do better? Yes, of course. Of course. But I also believe, one, the commissions, I've said this before, should have a much more direct pipeline and education process about this. Clearly, if this many people are confused, it's very hard to argue they did a good job. I think that's pretty fair to say. Uh, and what I would also say is, like, let's turn the tables here a little bit. What is the recertification process for judges, state to state? I would like to know the answer to that. How often are they required to make sure that they know the rules and can implement them. And refereeing, refereeing too, referees. How often is there re-education requirements, recertification requirements on the job? Candidly, I'm not sure if I know hardly any states that require it. I know some states are better, like California is pretty good about exercising these kinds of things all the time. They invite me to all of their monthly calls on this, like so I know that they're trying. But, you know, that's one state. There's 49 other of them. Um, what is their process? So, like, th this is not just about UFC commentators or UFC fighters or whatever. Although I would say if my check depended on it in the way that, like my check does depend on it, but in a very small way. But for Holly Holm, her check depended on it in a very big way on Saturday. If I had my life where my check was very dependent on that, I would want to know exactly what they're looking for, whether or not I agreed. They, they think that like what they can do and like their word is law. Like, oh, well, I, I don't think fighting should be judged that way. It should be judged this way. Well, that has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> you can go to the next meeting whenever they have it at the Association of Boxing Commissions and we can talk about changing the scoring criteria, criteria for all good reasons. That's not what's happening now. And so you have to understand that now. There you go. Okay, okay, someone wrote, okay, the guy writes me here saying, did you try the Camp Scoville spicy seasoning I sent? So I got notifications that I sent it, but where did you send it? <coughs> because it didn't come to my house. Did you send it to the office? Where did you send it? Email me, lukethomasnews at gmail.com, because I did not get it, but I don't know where it is, because it doesn't say on my the email that I got where it was shipping to. So I was like, well, what the fuck? Um, and then someone says he thanks me for putting these knuckleheads on blast. Yes, I'm not trying to do that. This is not like, oh, so-and-so tries to 
make some crazy YouTube point for a f- stupid thumbnail. I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to just get people to like reason. Like either you want kids to not be butchered in school or you don't. And if you don't, then you have to take seriously the various policy proposals and implementations that could meaningfully address some of these things and securitizing every element where we no longer live in a free society and it's the green zone and it's Baghdad. I don't think that takes the, the, uh, I don't think that's not a serious policy prescription. It's not. Hi Luke, which fighter do you think has the best follow-up shots? Meaning who picks their shots when they have an opponent hurt? Oh, he says Poirier. Dude, Rachmanov is so good at that. Rachmanov is so good at that. Shavkat Rachmanov, folks. He is, if he sees you wobbling or sees you anything like, like any kind of change that indicates pain, bitch, you best believe he's bringing the fucking thunder behind it. Oh, man. Shavkat Rachmanov is very good at that. Very good at that. Luke, I'm a unicorn. A female longtime Luke and MK listener. I appreciate your capacity for high quality, multidisciplinary thought and your patience with questions that are frequently asinine or repetitive. Well, that's very nice of you. I don't think they're asinine or repetitive. In fact, they need to be. Uh, no such thing as a. Well, there's not, I'm not going to say there's no such thing as a dumb question, but of all the mistakes you could make, the biggest mistake is in not asking versus worrying about whether you look stupid. I've asked questions that made me look stupid before. You're going to get further that, doing that than you are keeping your mouth shut. Yo, Luke, what was in that mystery shot BC gave you? He said it was that, like, um, that black rum, the Kraken or something like that. So, so, or I don't drink anymore, hardly, so I don't know. Um, I think you've seen the commercials. They used to sponsor Bellator. They've been to a bunch of places. Uh, it was one of them. It was not. I did not enjoy it. Does Ali overstep his role as manager? He's an aggressive manager, I can say that. Um, I'm going to table that. I've answered this question before, but I'm going to table that because I'm actually working on something. I'll know in the next, what day is it today? 26th. I'll know in the next three weeks. Just hang on to this. I promise. Uh, Renier de, uh, somebody versus UFC top five middleweight. I don't know. I couldn't answer that question. How picky should I be when picking out a BJJ gym to train in? I'm a, co- I'm a complete beginner, okay, and don't know what to look for regarding gym culture and people. Okay, everyone's going to give you a different answer on this one. I would say a couple of things. I would say, one, see what kind of people train there. And by that I mean, you know, is it normal people? Like, yes, there's nothing wrong going to a place with, like, a bunch of dedicated athletes and hardcore people. Because even then, places like, you know, Art of Jiu-Jitsu, they're going to separate classes out from, like, regular folks to, like, competition classes. So you don't have to worry about that per se. But as a general rule, I like to go to ones that have a little bit more, you know, like, this is, okay, this is not totally true. But, like, first of all, a lot of these places will let you take classes for free. Some will give you, like, a month long. Okay, so number one. To the other advice I just gave the guy, dude, ask him, hey, can I take a class? Can I roll? See what kind of vibe you get. See what kind of feel you get. Um, do they have segmented beginners classes? And uh, do they have segmented advanced, intermediate, gi, no gi? Um, you know, again, do they have women training there? Do they have people that, you know, don't look like total gym bros training there? You know, some kind of professional or whatever, a mixed crowd of some kind. 
you know, yeah, like I, I tend to think that those are better. Now, I, that that isn't necessarily going to be a big place. However, I'll tell you an example. Like this person, where do they live? I'm not sure. He gave money in Great British Pounds, so I'm going to assume he's in the UK. But like Marcelo Garcia's gym in New York City. Now, it's New York City, so you're going to pay New York City prices, which are insane. But that's a big school, you know. And typically would one I might steer some people away from. But I got to say, that school is quality. Not just because like, oh, Marcelo is one of the best no-gi grapplers or the best no-gi grappler ever or whatever you want to call him. But dude, like his instructors, they run a very good program. The classes are very segmented. The teaching instruction is very high. So what I would say is you got to do a few things. You got to go and like, you know, could you trust Yelp all that much? I would put some stock in it, not a whole lot. I would, I would go, honestly, the best thing you can do is all of these places for the most part. Have either one class, one week, two days, a month free. Go and try it. Go and try it. But what you would want to see is what kind of a place, uh, and do you want to go and compete? Is that a thing that you want to do? Because if you really want to compete, you should go to a place that you know focuses on competitive culture. Not all of the gyms do that equally. Um, but go try it out. Try it out. Seriously. Buy, buy a gi at one of these places or whatever. But you know, if you got a lot of rules about calling people master and professor and bowing, I'm cool with, but... You know, they run like a military style of, you know, I've seen places where you can only wear white geese. It's like, you know, that's a big, that's a big West Coast thing, you know, and there are good schools that do that. I'm not saying that bad schools do that. There's a lot of good, like really good schools that do that, where you can only wear white geese on the mat and shit like that. That's not for me. I don't like that. I feel like, you know, I don't want to train in an environment like that. And I never, and even Marcelo's was not like that when I went. You could just wear whatever you wanted. Um... Luke, if you were a strictly a fan, who would be your favorite fighters? Who are the fighters that bring me the most joy to watch? Habib was one of them. Um, Armin Saryukian, Shavkat Rachmanov, um, Izzy, Robert Whitaker. Honestly, John Jones. You know, I mean, you know, he's not my favorite person at all. If he never fought again, I wouldn't care one bit, but... Um, given all that he's done in his life, but, uh, candidly as a fighter, he is thrilling to watch for the most part. Um, Cormier was one of those guys. Josh Barnett was one of those guys for a time. Man, it's been a lot of them. Um, um, I like the, I like a little bit more like the grapplers who can strike versus the strikers who can grapple a little bit, but that's not a hard and fast rule. You know, Izzy is one of my favorite fighters of uh, Volkanovsky Holloway. These guys bring me joy when I watch. It's a joy to watch them compete, you know. Um, for the women, Shevchenko, um, and then some other ones as well. Um, Nunes, certainly. Um, Corey Sandhagen, TJ Dillashaw, all those guys. Peter Yan. Um, certainly Sterling in his last fight looked tremendous, you know, all things considered. So, you know, it's a long list, but it's these are the ones that bring me joy. These are the ones you'll see me talk about a little bit more. And it's not just them. I'm sure I'm leaving a bunch. Sean Brady. Yeah, it's another one I'm leaving off the list. I love watching Sean Brady fight. It's a joy for me. So the ones that just bring me joy, that's it. That was, that's the, I, I gave my. I'm going to start doing that by the way for my um, for my other like little 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 podcast I do for for MK the extra credit. I'm just going to start ranking my top five fights. Like these are just the ones I like the most, and I'm not, I don't expect people to like them for the same reasons or whatever, but just the ones for me. All right. If there's anything else, I will call it a day. Let's see. One more. How was the Freddie Gibbs show? Funny you should ask. 
I got recognized a bunch at the show, which was very surprising. Um, <laughs> this hasn't happened in a while, but I had a woman hit on me. Um, and you're like, oh, how could you tell? Oh, I could tell. Oh, I could tell. When you're 42 and you look like a Dodge Omni, you know, or you're the Dodge Omni version of yourself. I, ha I haven't always been a Dodge Omni. I've turned into one, but I haven't always been one. But I had a, I had a, I had a woman hit on me. I was like, okay. I mean, I didn't pay any mind because I didn't care. But I was like, that's funny. That hasn't happened in a while. So um, I'll say this. Freddie was really good. Freddie was really good. But the speaker shorted out like a minute into his set. And there was like a 10-minute pause to get it working again. And then they got it working again. And it was fine. But the set was, but we counted it, five zero minutes. Just 50 minutes. It was nothing. The show ended at ten thirty-seven or something at night. I was like, "Okay, Freddie was good." I think they had equipment problems because the sound was a little bit off too. So what I would say is, a buddy of mine had seen Freddie Gibbs. This was the fourth time seeing him, and he was saying by far that was the worst show. Again, that Freddie was fine, but the, the, everything about it, from the speakers to everything else, just didn't go right. So what I would say is, if Freddie comes to your town and you like that venue, go, go. But if you if you're if you're like I don't know about that venue. May not be worth it because Freddie is awesome, but mm, the venue was not so great. Okay, let's call it a day. I hope I didn't lose half my listener base. I probably did. This is the thing I've been doing. I've been just angering people who come to see me all the time. I've been doing that for a long time. I don't really know what the answer is because it's just what I'm good at. But if you stuck around, thank you for sticking around. I greatly appreciate it. Um, let's see. Oh, did I forget the ones from last week? I think there was one I forgot from last week. Real quick. Yeah, was it, uh, how do you see Chandler versus Islam playing out? This is the last one. I think I think I talked about that one. Islam slowing it down, I think eventually just taking his back. Eddie Alvarez was able to do it, right? So why wouldn't he be able to? Um, okay, thank you guys so much for watching. I greatly appreciate it. I hope you're doing well. I'm actually going to go see a friend right now that I haven't seen since before the pandemic. We used to train together. I haven't seen him in that long. It has been since, I think, I don't know if I've saw him in 2020. It may have been 2019. Can you believe that? Sometimes it takes a while to reunite with folks. But I'm actually going to go see him. So I'm pretty excited about it. Um, thank you for watching. I'll be back. I appreciate it. And